You're listening to Creative Rituals with me, artist and illustrator Georgie Stewart. This is a new podcast about the daily habits of artistic life. Each week I'll be asking writers, artists, musicians and all kinds of creatives about how exactly they get down to it and make great work. How do artists plan their day to generate and protect their creativity? My guest this week is the author Leonie Swan. Leonie's debut novel, Three Bags Full, was published in 2005 and became an instant hit, leading the German bestseller chart for months. It has since been translated into 26 languages and Leonie has published a further five crime novels. I illustrated the cover for her most recent book, The Sunset Years of Agnes Sharp, and although we follow each other's work online, this is our first time chatting together. We had a roaming conversation about her creative process when it comes to writing a new book, as well as a very enlightening chat about the ins and outs of the industry and how to actually go about getting your first book published. Could you visually describe your workspace for me? What sort of things are in the room and what do you see looking out the window? Right, that's very easy. I'm looking at you in a moment. So, um, but it's sort of generally uh, Japanese inspired. So it's, um, I'm sitting on the floor on a tatami mat. I'm a big floor sitter. I sort of, uh, it just sort of gets you moving a bit more because if you're in a chair, you're sort of stuck there. And if you're on the floor, you can just stretch on your legs, you can fold them up and you sort of, you move a bit more. So I find it, um, quite, uh, I don't know, just just a bit more interesting to to to, and I'm also used to it. So if, if I'm on a end up on a chair for some reason, I usually fold up my legs somehow because that's uh, and that makes the room sort of quite um, airy because I'm quite low to the ground, which means that I've got a lot of air above me. I got loads of plants there looking at me, sometimes a bit uh, accusingly when I water them. But there's, there's a lot of greenery. I look out of a window and see a big willow. Um, there's not much else in there. It's just a um, desk, which I try to keep tidy. Sometimes it works and sometimes things pile up, but there's not really that much because I don't work with things so much. So I might maybe need a book for reference, but generally there's, you know, um, a lamp and uh, there's a few lamps for in the evening when it gets um, darker, but it's mostly plants, natural materials, white walls, a few pictures mostly creatures, but but rather sort of quite sparse in a way. Um, so I feel like um, it has room, it leaves room for thought and ideas um, because it's not too distracting. Um, I'm very big on being distracted by things. So I, I really love the idea of um, working in a cafe like many writers do, but I just can't do it. The moment I sit there and anything happens at all, I will be uh, drawn to that and can't really focus on my stuff. So all your writing takes place in your study? Well, um, maybe half of it. The other half might be in the kitchen just because of the dog. I've got a dog. Um, you might have seen him on Instagram. And um, he's not allowed upstairs because the stairs are really steep and it wouldn't be good for him and, and his hip. And it would also be quite precarious to walk down the stairs for him. So he's downstairs and I don't want to leave him for too long. So I usually either work in the kitchen, which is, you know, kitchens of homely, warm, um, kitchen I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing too spectacular. Um, and there I will sit on a chair, but but I prefer to work here because, you know, you've got a door, you can close and nobody else can come in. So that, that is 
reassuring because as I said, distraction happens and it does happen very easily with me. So yeah. Yeah. And how many days a week are you in there writing? Working for yourself, do you create a sort of regimented work schedule, like a Monday to Friday, or is every day different? Well, I try to um, work every day. What I do is I work, um, sort of, I've got an idea of what I want to get done within that week. Um, I usually uh, I map out of many chapters I want to write, um, and I've got usually a plan a week per chapter. Um, and so, so it depends a little on how far I get. And, and usually I, my goal is to write every day. Um, if that doesn't work out for some reason, because I, don't know, I have to go shopping or something else crops up, then I can have always one or two days within that week to catch up. Um, but I, I don't so much um, tell myself that I have to be there for a certain amount of time. It's more like you've got to get these two pages done today. And if it takes an hour, great, then you've got to rest for gardening. And if it takes five hours, then you've got to put it in the five hours. And if you have to do it at night, you have to do it at night. But um, the fact that sort of I, I usually know how long things are going to take me. So um, it's, fairly, it's a fairly relaxed schedule, I suppose, with about four or five hours work in, in not necessarily in one setting, maybe two hours of like in, in, in actual study and the rest somewhere in the kitchen or in between, or maybe you're taking notes in the evening. And the rest is really just somehow getting the ideas, which can happen anywhere. And um, it's not so much of uh, not so much to do with my actual whereabouts, it's more just frame of mind thing. Um, but yeah, I, I try to, it definitely helps to have a space you're used to work in because then just can sit there and, you know, get on with it. And um, so I try to spend at least three hours in here every day. Doesn't sound like much, does it? <laughs> no, but creative work, because I think in comparison to maybe an office job when you're kind of doing lots of different things, creative work, it, often when you get into that flow state and it's solid, it doesn't sound like that much, three or four hours, but you're completely immersed in it. So I think it is quite draining and you kind of come out in a sort of disoriented state. I think so. I always feel like a complete wimp because I feel like everybody else is working a lot more than I do. But um, I have to say five hours a day is about the maximum I can do on a sustainable basis. I mean, of course, there's a deadline looming and I really have to get things done. I can work day and night, but it's not sustainable. I might be able to do it for a week or two, and then I'm completely washed out. And and then I, um, if I want to sort of do uh, continue work continually on something for a longer time, it can't be more than five hours a day because it is training. And also, there's all the the other stuff of like getting into the zone which takes time you have to do to approach you can't just sit down and uh, say okay I'm working now the way you do with emails I mean obviously you can sort of sit down and the next second you'll be answering emails but I find with writing you you sit down and if, if nothing happens and you have to somewhat get yourself in the right frame of mind to, to to access the stuff you want to do. And do you have any little rituals around that for getting in the right frame of mind before you enter that fictional world you've created any little habits that you do to yeah get you in that zone well what I usually do is I read what I've done the day before or maybe the whole chapter if I'm working on just to re re reread it which can take up to a half an hour depending on how long it is 
um, and usually make little changes while I read. So it's also a bit of editing that's happening at the same time. But by the time I'm sort of through that, the work I'd done up to that point, um, I will be sort of ready for it. Um, so, um, which means that I can't really work for, you know, just, just 10 minutes or so. If you've got a little sort of um, gap in your schedule, somehow you feel like you could get some work done. It doesn't really work like that because it, it takes maybe 15, 20 minutes to sort of get to a point where I can actually start writing. And so it's mostly working with the text in a bit more of a passive way, not, not sitting down and writing straight away, but sitting down, looking at what you've done, maybe writing down an idea or two, and, and yeah, so then sort of slide into it. In terms of other stuff, not so much. I usually tr make sure there's some kind of liquid av available, mostly tea. Um, but so because you know, otherwise you sort of you, you sit there and you you get going, and then five minutes later you realize you're thirsty and you get up because being distracted is great, and then you you make your tea, and by the time the tea is ready, um, you will be out of the zone again. So so I try to have the tea uh, or, or water if it's hot uh, available, but that's that's about it really. And are you listening to music while you write or do you need silence? Absolutely not. No, I can't do that at all. Um, any, any, any other side? Because I think what I'm sort of, um, I'm a sort of auditory person in terms of the way I write. So basically I listen to the stuff in my head and write it down. So I can't really listen to anything else at the same time. So uh, very much, I mean, I know people write um, visually and just look at the text and that's how they work but for me it's, it's all sounds in the end so um which means that i can't really have any other sounds i mean i can blend them out if it's something in the background or the neighbors kids or something like that it's not a problem i can just forget about it but i, I wouldn't consciously listen to anything else because that that doesn't work at all yeah and is there a certain time of day when you feel most inspired to write um well it's definitely not the morning <laughs> the morning person so I wake up I usually try to get through emails and admin stuff in the morning sort of stuff that doesn't that only needs half a brain um and um then I go for a long walk with my dog and probably start working around 10 um at the earliest um so ideally the, the ideal day which doesn't really happen that often at all um i would try to get two hours in in the morning 10 to 12 and then another two to three in the afternoon i don't know something like two to five something like that um in reality sometimes the best ideas do come in the evening and i find writing in the evening easy I just know that it's going to have an impact on the next day. So I try not to do it too much. But sometimes you just get this idea. And sometimes, I, um, especially if you're in the zones of just half asleep, good things happen when you're half asleep. And I, I, then I usually I try to remember it and try to write something down. It sometimes leads to me finding some, some notes, which I can't make any sense of at all, which can be really frustrating because it's something that felt like an extremely good idea the night before and you can't really work out what you were thinking. But sometimes it is good stuff. So I think for inspiration, the night is good for actually getting stuff done, not so much. Yeah, I'm a massive believer in that sort of strike while the iron's hot. If you're yes. feeling excited <laughs> now, then just do it because you might yes. Your most recent book, The Sunset Years of Agnes Sharp, is a murder mystery set in an old people's home. Have you always written crime? And what is it about crime that you find so appealing? 
Well, the thing is, with crimes, I mean, I, I always, let me think, yeah, but there's been one book, it's been more of an urban fantasy story, but even that did have a sort of um, investigative element to it. They're, so they're all about some kind of mystery that has to be unraveled, and most of them are actually crime fiction. And the simple reason for that is that that is something that is popular and accessible to a lot of people, because um, I think my real interest is writing for uh, from a bit of an oddball perspective, um, so a, a point of view that is not that common. Like the first book was about sheep, and it was, yeah, I think 90% from a sheep's point of view. And um, I still have little of animal cameos happening in all of my books. And it, it's really important to me to um, try to discover the world from a bit of a different angle in each book. So with the old people, so I'm not that old. So I, I sort of found it intriguing to just put myself, have it as a thought experiment, more or less. And, and I want to have the reader sort of have the same process happening to a reader. And, and I want them to sort of put themselves into somebody else's um, position in life. Because I think that's one of the really amazing things books can do better than anything else. You, you don't get the same effect in a film, just sort of basically... Um, borrowing somebody else's life and borrowing somebody else's um, emotions and uh, experiences for a little while. I think it's really magical and really interesting. And uh, if you do that, and if you do that um, um, consistently, it can take some getting used to because um, most people are, I mean, it's, it's a process and not everyone's ready to just sort of let go and experience something completely different. So having that frame of a crime story really helps the leader sort of to acclimatize because they sort of know what they're getting. So, oh, this is a crime story, I know how this works. There'd be a, you know, there'd be a, a murder and there'd be some kind of investigation going on. And that sort of eases them into the um, slightly off or slightly um, underdog or slightly... Um, um, odd uh, point of view I want to have them in um, and it's also something that um, will serve as a frame and, and keep people sort of interested and um, um, help me to just make everything sort of transparent and understandable and enjoyable while still having this different angle to it or at least that's, that's the idea so that's the theory whether it works or not is a question but that, that is my passion to inspire people to discover the world anew to uh, a little bit you know obviously not, not in a big way but just sort of you know seeing things from a different angle I think it's for me this is very important and the crime fiction helps to bring it across and it also helps it to anchor it in a, in a really sort of solid story so so this is why I write crime fiction it's not I mean I like crime fiction I mean everyone likes a good mystery if you if you're puzzled by something I think I don't know many people who don't enjoy that um, so I do like it in its own right, but as a vehicle for what I want to do, it's really very useful and, and fun. What you just talked about sort of reminded me of the opening of Sunset Years, which is from Hetty's perspective, the tortoise. Yes. <laughs> and she's at the scene of the crime. And yeah, it's such a lovely, unusual way to yeah, enter the story. Yes, I, sort of, I really feel that it brings something to store. I mean, I, I really like animals, so it's a natural thing for me. But um, just sort of changing your position and seeing things in a different way, I think it's just, apart from anything else, it's a really fun experience if it's, if it's well done. And, um, yeah, 
and I always try to incorporate creatures and Sunset Hall is a tortoise Hattie and um, yeah, she gets a few cameos and um, yeah, a lot of people in, enjoy this and yeah. There's a real cosiness and familiarity to your writing. Do you tend to base your characters and settings on real people and places or are they figments of your imagination? No, absolutely not. I'd be very, I'd be very careful basing any. I mean, that's what every, you know, all your friends and family and all your acquaintances are sort of afraid of that you will somehow drag them into a into a crime story and expose their, I don't know, their little quirks and um, and I, I try to steer clear of that. My obviously you sort of observe traits and you will sort of use those traits on someone else, but. Um, I would say that all my characters are pretty much um, freely formed without too much of a um, conscious model. To it. Obviously, your subconscious does strange things, and it's sometimes not that easy to um, work out where something has come from. But I, I definitely do try to avoid any, uh, you know, um, similarities. Re real life characters are purely accidental and all that. Um, because yeah um, well it is fiction I can do what I want so I, I take full advantage of that um, yeah that, one that's one of the really nice things you can make things happen it's okay and um, so um, why not if you've got the freedom to do that I, I definitely take advantage yeah talk to me about your writing process are you editing each sentence as you go to get it the best it can be or do you tend to splurge the first draft in a bit of a haze just getting the words down and then tidying everything up in the next draft it's, it's a mix of things the first thing would be to just start somehow usually with, with an idea over the scene that I find interesting some kind of constellation some kind of problem that just is there and I don't really at that stage know much about the story as a whole I maybe have a few rough ideas about characters I want and then a rough idea of where I want things to go but it's really very uh, basic at that point I just have I dive into a scene and um, I just you know write it um, and, and see what interests me and see how people and characters develop within that scene and then by writing about them I learn more about them and then that will be something, give me something to build on um, in, in future writing. Um, and usually I, I write quite, I suppose, fluently, you could say. I don't agonize over every sentence. I just write them down somehow. And then the process I already mentioned, of getting back into the zone process, which um, means reading through stuff I've written so far, at least reading the last chapter. That is always a bit of an editing process at the same time. So I will revisit sentences and obviously check if everything is, you know, unfolds in a logical and consistent way. So I will constantly work on stuff in the, um, uh, that's already been written um, while developing new stuff. Um, and it, but it's not sort of mapped out and planned uh, in advance. I know some writers just, you know, big boards with loads of arrows pointing in all directions. They know exactly what's going to happen, who killed who, why, when and how. And I usually just sort of walk into the story like like my characters, more or less. And so I think it's called discovery writing. So I really go in there and see what was going to happen, which has the advantage that it is fairly intuitive and also 
not uh, too um, predictable because I don't know what's going to happen. So there is no way I'm going to be too obvious about things too early. Obviously, at some point, you have to make it look um, consistent, to make it look um, intended. You have to go back and insert a few things, a few hints. Um, so it's a constant back and forth. Um, and, and it, it works for me. And it's sort of one of the reasons why it works, I think, is, is in a way, I'm a first reader. And I'm sort of surprised and involved in the story just like hopefully the reader is going to be at a later stage because I don't know what's going to happen either. Um, so um, it's um, at that point, it's it's just a bit of a an adventure really. And then at some point, obviously you have to, um, you've got your craft and you have to go back and see whether what you, what you made up will stand the test of, um, you know, um, storytelling. And um, you, you want to see whether really, um, everything works and the character development is consistent. So there's a lot of reworking the text after. It, I always find it hardest just to get a, um, an initial text on paper or rather not on paper, obviously on, uh, in a document. Um, um, I write on a computer. Almost all of the things I write are on computer. And um, the thing, a bit I enjoy most is the reworking, just sort of you're just shaping it and molding it and making it as shiny and um, fun and um, attractive and uh, suspenseful as I can possibly make it. So the, 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 the polishing is, is my favorite bit, I suppose, but obviously it needs all that groundwork. And um, yeah, so it's a bit messy, I suppose, but it does, so far it's always worked somehow. You've really surprised me there because I was going to ask you how much time you spend planning because I just assumed for a crime novel you would need to have it mapped out and the answers. <laughs> um, so you're kind of figuring out the answers as you go. Yes, absolutely. I, I sometimes get this, this stage where I feel like I really should work out who did it now because the book is quite far advanced and I still don't have any idea. And then at some point, some, I think your subconscious usually knows more than you do in a way. At some point, just sort of clicks and I feel like of course this is obvious why didn't I think of this before um, and I think that's what because um, a part of me already knows um, uh, but I know it's sort of you know it's, it's, it's probably different from how many crime writers work I once was at this um, festival we had discussion with some other crime writer and the question was um, you know how do you what's if you want to write a crime novel, how do you approach it? And and he said, well, the one thing you really, really have to do is you have to plan everything out in advance. And his advice. And my advice was like, you know what, just go for it. Don't worry about it. So there are really different ways of doing it. At some point, and I think um, that works for me because the crime itself, while important, and while I want it to be, um, you know, sort of interesting and suspenseful. It's only part of what I want to do. I very much also, also want to, you know, think about character development and about um, um, that point of view thing I mentioned earlier. So it's it's only part of the package, the, the whole crime thing. So this is not everything I um, I'm interested in, which means that I just have to juggle more things and this is my way of doing it. I, I don't know if you really ask me how it works. I have no idea. I'm, I'm really surprised that it does, but so far, so good. So yeah, I don't, 
you always get this point by writing you're like this is never going to work this is just insane how is this but then you know at some point it falls into place so yeah because you do hear writers sometimes say about their characters that they know so well often you know a character that they'll be really attached to and they say it just came to me while I was writing that they have to die and it's, and it's almost not yeah. <laughs> like say, a conscious decision it's almost subconscious and the characters taking over it's kind of like as you said the story will unfold for itself yes definitely as I, I feel it. Not, not only dying or anything characters do is something that I feel comes very much out of them much more than it comes out of me which is of course you know it, it will have to come out of me at some point but that's not how it feels it feels like you're dealing with real people and they do their thing and you just watch them and um it's, it's not like um, they could do just anything you want. There's a logic to what they do. And you're sort of um, in service of that logic more than just sort of making stuff up. It doesn't feel very much like making stuff up, although probably at some level it is. It's lovely to be that lost in the world that you've created. What does your writing schedule look like when you're in the process of writing a book? Are you quite measured in terms of taking breaks, taking time out to do other things, or are you burning the candle at both ends, working solidly up all hours type thing? It's a mix. I used to do more burning the candle, um, but um, it doesn't really work that well in the long run. Um, so I've started to be a bit more um, regiment in terms of what I want to do in a, as a and and um, in a week or in a month and I've got these like mini goals these of landmarks I want to know I want to get to in a certain um, amount of time because you know when you start out you feel like you've got a year or a year and a half to do something my natural instinct is first to take two months off completely do something else and uh, not worry about it because it is a really long time but of course if you do that at some point you'll be in trouble because time does pass and it tends to pass more quickly than you expect so it's a bit of a mix of having um, my little landmarks that basically put a bit of pressure on me and then also asking my publisher for a firm deadline just to have a bit of outwards pressure as well because um, without I'm not I'm very good at doing nothing and and I think it's part of it's an important part of the process but obviously it can be overdone and it's easily overdone and for that, I try to just have, you know, a little, a little alarm system going on. So if, if I um, want to reach a certain chapter by you know, this and that month and I'm way off, then I would make sure to put more time in to catch up um, within that time frame. But I do have weeks off and, and little holidays. Usually, ideally, if I reach a certain stage, like having the first draft done, that would usually call for a holiday not in this case because I'm a bit late at this time my current deadline is end of October and I will probably have to work through to get that maybe a weekend or two but nothing dramatic um, but it is really important even small trips really help you reset I find sometimes you just you're too stuck in your your work and you don't get anywhere and you don't see the obvious so taking a week or a day or even you know just a few hours off doing something completely different is really the, for me the way to go but you need nerves to do it so especially if time is tight you you almost have to force yourself to let go for a while and yeah what's your favorite part of writing a book the beginning initial idea research stage 
the middle and the actual process of writing it or the end holding the finished book in your hand? I mean, they're all fun in their own way. I, I really like the the freedom you've got at the beginning because you sit down and you know, open a new document, you can do absolutely anything. Nobody can say this is wrong. You can just, it's, uh, you can go anywhere, which is a bit scary, but it's also really, really um, inspiring and fun. And it's a great freedom. Um, on the other hand, obviously there's a bit of pressure to it because you don't want to end up entangled in something that you can't see through because you, you put your time in it. So, this is a bit of a sort of precarious, but fun bit. Um, research can be fun in parts. I mean, I don't usually do that much research. Obviously, I, I check my facts and I will uh, sort of talk to people who are in a certain situation and, and enjoy the fact that you always sort of enlarge your, your, your knowledge of the world a little bit because I sometimes consciously choose a subject that I don't know that much about just so I can sort of I know, educate myself or just know, learn more things about you know, certain certain topics. At the same time, it can be a bit of a, I know, I'm just draggy thing because you um, you want to find out the facts and the facts usually are not that easily come by. And um, for example, the, the sequel of the book that's coming out now, The Sunset Hall, um, was originally planned to um, have on a cruise ship because you know the old people are perfect for a cruise ship only I'd never been on a cruise so I had booked myself a mini cruise just to get an idea and that was um I don't know um March 20 you know we all know what happened in March 20 that cruise luckily didn't happen I think I was just basically a week or two away from ending up in some kind of plague ship which would have led to a completely different novel. um but then I had the problem that I had to write about something that I never experienced at all. And I tried to do that via research and talking to people who've been on cruises. And at some point I just had to realize it doesn't work. I can't, I can't see it. I mean, you, you can borrow other people's experience to a certain degree, but you, you need a certain visual concept of, of where you're going and what you're doing. If that is not there at all, I, I later moved the, um, the whole plot to a hotel at the coast. So problem solved it had you know, quite the same flair but better than second guessing yourself all the time um so that that can be fun the research but but it's not um pure fun i think my favorite bit is really these of having a, a text that's almost done reading it through making it better and better and better or at least that's what you think you do you never know obviously but of hoping to make it better and just sort of enjoying the process and enjoying the fact that it works which is always a bit of a miracle. And um, so that I think sort of working on the text in detail is probably my favorite bit, um, just to, to make it all smooth and well-oiled and, and fun, because that's, that way I sort of get to experience to a certain degree what the reader hopefully is going to experience. And if I'm enjoying myself, it's a good sign, so. Yeah, and I guess you don't have the stress of whether you know what the answer is yet. You're just, you can always taste the end. Exactly. Because and, and, so in the stage I'm in at the moment, I'm just sort of doing chapters and I've got an idea, but not everything is mapped out yet. Um, it's interesting. It keeps you on your toes. But at the same time, you always have this slight doubt of, is it really going to come together or is some kind of, you know, is it not going to work for some reason? Obviously, you can always make it work, but it's it's a bit less enjoyable because you um, you just don't see where you're going or not always see where you're going. 
but yeah, it, it means it's all. I mean, it's a fantastic job. I'm not complaining in the slightest. I really wouldn't want to do anything else. Well, I don't know. Maybe uh, Oxy actually can't come up with anything. <laughs> so I really, I'm really enjoying the whole process there. And when and where do your best ideas come to you? If I had to name one place, it would probably be under in the shower. <laughs> I, don't I think it's just the way you relax when you're sort of un, in, in warm water that it helps. Uh, and sometimes when I do sort of manual tasks, stuff like I don't know cooking or um, I don't know gardening, when your sort of hands are busy but your head's free, that does sometimes um, really help. Or swimming, um, anything where you sort of your body is busy but not, uh, but your mind is not. Yeah, I heard that a couple of days ago that it's best to. Um, I can't remember who it was. Some writer or artist or someone that I was listening to on podcasts was saying that the best is when you're in motion so and if any any time he's trying to think of an idea he will he won't think about it unless he's out on a walk and I think exactly what you were just saying there's something about the there being the body being in movement yeah I think that's probably why you instinctively start walking around when you want to come something you just think about a problem so it's hard to stay still there must be a reason for it um anyway it works for me and sometimes they just come. I mean, usually the worst thing, obviously, you can possibly do is sit there and say, I need an idea now, because I can guarantee no idea is going to show up. But sometimes they just ambush you, you do something else, and all of a sudden, it's very hard to, to know where they come from, really. But um, Yeah, to be fair, if you knew where they'd come from, you'd always go back to that place. You can't really plan when. That is the thing. That would be a really special place. But yeah, it's not why it works. But I think... Um, something that's really important to me is leisure in, in the sense of not doing anything because you know especially in the modern world most people feel like they need to do stuff all the time they're not doing stuff they're maybe on their phones or I don't know scrolling through things or doing emails and and I find there's a lot of value in just sitting somewhere in the sun or not necessarily in the sun but just somewhere you like sitting and doing absolutely nothing that's another sort of way of you know getting ideas if you really do nothing and not try to catch an idea which which doesn't work but just sort of easing into the fact that right now there's nothing to do and you just you know um, leisure um, and I think people used to be much better at it uh, and I think it's something that's sort of getting more lost more and more and I think it's for me personally and now it's quite valuable um just because it gets me places in the end. And it takes a bit of nerve again, if you feel like I should be doing something now and you don't feel quite at ease, just, um, I don't know, just not doing anything productive at all. But in a way it can be more productive than just sort of mindlessly sort of just um, ta doing task after task. So for me personally, it's really important. And I think I'm rather good at doing nothing. <laughs> there you go, it's my real talent. <laughs> Yeah, I'm the same. I feel like this year I've really got better at not feeling guilty for resting because, as you say, I think productivity can be such a stick that we use to beat ourselves with. Just learning that the measure of your day is not what you've got done sometimes. Obviously, it is important to a degree to keep working towards your goals. But, um, yeah, there's value in other areas of life, too. Yeah, and also, and if you're sort of completely free in your work, I mean, there's the good thing is that you you can really 
decide when and how and where you work. The bad thing is that theoretically you could be working all the time because it's not like the, the, the office closes in the evening and then you, you're okay to do something else and you can um, just relax about it because there's nothing to be done. There's In theory, there's also always something to be done, which means that you just need um, these spaces where it's okay to do nothing. Yeah. Otherwise, you sort of just sort of, we've got this constant cloud of bad, bad conscience hovering above you, and it's just not going to get you anywhere. And how important is it for you to dedicate time in your day to creative acts that are not related to your work? And what might those be for you? I'm not sure. I mean, I do enjoy photography, but I wouldn't I wouldn't even see it as creative as such, or I don't know, gardening. Um, it is. I think it's more something that happens. I mean, as I said, stuff that was done in my hands, um, not necessarily creative. Um, I don't even think about whether it is creative or not, I suppose. Um, it's not that I consciously say, okay, I have to do something creative now, which is not work. Um, because I, I also do not really think of work as work. I mean, work is obviously writing the book, but it's, it's not work as such. It's just something that I want to do. Um, I know I don't I don't think I have any sort of dedicated zones for doing something creative probably because I feel like what I'm doing anyway is probably creative and I don't even think about things whether you know whether something is creative or not um, as such but I, I do like freedom in the way I do things so I suppose there's certain creativity that sneaks in yeah, I think, I think the concept of creativity for me is not something, as, as you can tell with my fumbling answer, it's not something I'm super um, familiar with in terms of, it's, I don't even use it on myself that much. Um, so, I mean, obviously, if you look at a definition and what I do, probably most of it is creative to a certain degree, but I think I take it for granted that things, you know, emerge and thus, you know, it's, it's not something I um, feel needs to needs a special label or a special special thought or special effort it's just you know whatever happens I guess it's kind of like when you're a child you're not thinking oh I'm being creative now you just get yeah I just just throw some paint on that on the sheet of paper it's not creative it's just yeah I suppose it's a I think I've got a really playful approach to all these things and in a way it's 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 play rather than anything else to me which is why I don't really think about whether it's creative or not it's just either it's fun or it's not and if it's not fun I need to change something mm -hmm. and can you talk a little bit about your relationship to nature because I've seen on your Instagram you're always out soaking it up there's lots of animals on there how important is that to your practice <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it is really important um it is important I mean especially the, the morning dog walk which is something like um one or two um at least one and a half to two hours of you know just walking through woods and stuff every morning it's really it sort of sets you up for the day uh, and obviously you have to sort of you know manage your dog at the same time which isn't always easy he's, he's quite young and you know full of himself um and it is just i think it's important that your mind is with something else that isn't you um and something that is sort of enjoyable but doesn't really demand anything of you as such and, and just the fact that you have your, your eye can roam a bit and see all these different shapes and colours. And um, and I think it's just a very natural thing that we, we all used to do a lot uh, in the old days. <laughs> you just still, um, you know, when you were living in a bit more natural way, just walking through nature is something that is sort of 
intuitively good and right and you don't have to question yourself about am i doing the right thing is this um useful is sort of moments of just um being a little part of something big and quite beautiful is is just something reassuring and it puts you at ease and and then you can sort of have tackle the rest of your day without too much um doubt i suppose because you already seen one good thing in the morning and that will uh, get you through the rest of the day usually yeah and because you mentioned earlier that you work mostly on the computer and i guess being out there kind of offers that respite from being on your screen and the digital side of things yes definitely mm. i mean that's one of the things that i suppose I, I don't enjoy that much about the whole writing thing i do this i mean obviously i could handwrite it but it just means that you have to get it into your computer at a later stage so it doesn't really solve the problem you've just stuck somewhere and into you know looking on a little screen which you know don't get me wrong it's a miracle that you can just type these things in and can change everything all the time i don't know how people did it in the old days of the typewriter because it's such it's such a relief to just sort of be able to shape your text any part of your text at any time so i'm not definitely not moaning about the computer but it is uh, quite a static thing and it's definitely important to move your body and to um, do something completely different um, for part of the time. And do you have a specific font that you like to write in? Uh, Garamond. Garamond. I can't think of that off the top of my head. I have to look it up. I heard a really cool hack, though, that some writers do. It's just quite niche, but they write different characters in different fonts so they can differentiate them in their head which I thought was that was like a really funny trick <laughs> all right it's very it's, it's one of these visual things that probably wouldn't work for me because they're too visual but um yes it's, it's, it's an interesting idea I think personally I just would find it too much of a fact just having to change the fonts all the time <laughs> because it's it, for me that the flowy bit is really important so um I can see how it would work for people though it would make it more of a would feel more like a drama or um a play I suppose. Yeah absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about the process of getting published because there's a lot of secrecy shrouding the publishing industry and I think a lot of people will be interested to know the details of how that process works. Do you pitch the book first and then start writing? Do you need an agent? How does it work? How did your first publishing deal come about? Yeah I think the, the sort of the key thing is the um, publishing your first book because that's the the big um step uh, which which is really very hard to um i know just tackle and one of the reasons for that is that i think the publishing industry in a way is quite conservative and quite careful which is understandable because obviously if you if you um, publish a book and it doesn't go anywhere and you don't have any uh, reasons why you sort of if you like if you, if you publish a book which is similar to another book and that book worked you can always say well that book worked and you have some some kind of justification for doing what you do but just going out there um, um, just risking things it's, I, I can see that a lot of publishers don't really want to do that because there's so much riding on it and so much investment so getting the foot in the door is the tricky bit and, and for me, I mean, there's a lot of luck involved. I, I started out very naively, you know, you have your first draft and then most publishers want a reading sample, usually something like the first 20 pages um, and you send it to the publisher and you're excited and you wait for a reply. And if you get a reply at all, at least that was what happened in my case, um, it was like, thanks for your manuscript, we read with interest. Unfortunately, it doesn't really fit into our program at the moment. You can think, great. And you do that a few times and um, you get sort of sad and sad or you do it. Um, 
And what happened to me is at some point, um, there was a publisher I really sort of uh, liked a lot and was had some hopes. And I uh, saw that they can be quite specific about how they want the reading sample. So, you know, in terms of layout and, and uh, font and all that. So I wrote to them and asked them, how exactly do you want it? What are requirements? And the email I got back was, thank you very much for your manuscript. We read it with interest. Unfortunately, it doesn't. So I got the standard no thanks letter back after just asking um, for after you know the, the format they wanted. And that point I was like, okay, this this is not how it works. Nobody's actually reading this stuff. <laughs> they don't even read the email you send. So this is not um, the way to do it. And then I very luckily got in touch with an agent, which a literary agent, and she, um, in a way, it's the same process. You you send her a reading sample or him, or the agency, and um, my diff the difference here was that the agent actually read the text, and then she came back and said, "That sounds very interesting. Send me a rest." And then she said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm going to. Um, I would 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 like to be your agent," and that is the game changer, because then you've got somebody within the industry who will not just send it to, I don't know, the publisher, but they will send it to uh, Emma, who they know and they have already had coffee with at a book fair, that kind of thing. And that, that really makes a big difference as because, as I said, um, um, publishers or, or editors quite like to um, refer to other people in the industry, which, you know, it's reassuring for everyone, you know, so because other people know how the industry works and if they like it, then, you know, that's, you already got a bit of a backup um, happening. So um, um, she, um, you know, then, then basically she does the same process. She also sends in reading samples, but she will um, send them to people who actually read them and she will phone them up and say, have you read this yet? What do you think? That kind of thing. So basically it's a step fraught that probably nobody ever looks at or um, having somebody who um, will basically personally, um, you know, place them with people they think would like to work with them. And um, after that happened, I was, you know, the really surprised and I suppose very lucky. I got five offers for my first book. And then there was a little bidding thing going on, which, going from absolutely zero, I mean, anybody saying, I'm going to publish, here's five quid, I publish your book, I would have been ecstatic, you know, I didn't have any great expectation, and all of a sudden there were all these people wanting the book, and they were sort of trying to outbid each other, it was completely um, outlandish in a way, and, um, and then again, the agent was really useful, because um, she would basically defend my rights, sort of, um, just you know make sure that the contract you get in the end is um in my favor because as a, as a writer you don't really know how it works so you know the whole legal aspect to it industry norm or just something very um cheeky or or pushy and, and that that really helps to basically puts you at ease when you do um can you still hear me because you're a bit um, I think my picture is frozen. Can you? I can hear you. There's bits that have sort of gone a bit crackly, but I think. Okay, sorry about it. We're in the countryside here. Yeah, we're a bit temperamental. Um, so anyway, agents are really good thing, and um, made made a big difference for me. And then um, the way it works now is because um, the first book was a really big success, 
So I was just extremely lucky there. I was the right book at the right time kind of thing. So once you've got a name, obviously people are interested in publishing your stuff. Although once again, sort of having something published um, in another country, especially in, in the English speaking world, um, it's difficult because there's not many translations going on. So I'm really excited about uh, Sunset Hall being being out there now and all my English friends being able to read it finally. So that is, a, again, another step. That's also something my agent will sort of, um, you know, chase and, and promote and, and do all the bits that are necessary for that because I'm used to promoting myself as we can forget about it. like here's the text take it or leave it that, that's me promoting myself and obviously I um I don't really get very far with that so um that helps and nowadays when I want to write a book I usually will go to my publisher and say this is my idea maybe write a sort of one or two page outline and if they like it I just you know we, we negotiate a contract and I'll get going so it's it's really become a lot easier but I think the key thing is to make somebody see you and that is very hard if you don't have contacts I think that's, that's my what I took away from the whole thing just sending it in and hoping for the best um, doesn't have a good success rate at all. It's so interesting to hear about because I think so much of this stuff is kept private I remember when I was growing up and thinking that um, authors and illustrators very much collaborated on books uh, but often that's not the case at all outside of picture books for small children so I illustrated uh, your book cover for the US market um, but we were never in contact throughout that process. No I wasn't even I mean I wasn't even I knew obviously I was aware that they would they were commissioning somebody to the cover but I wasn't even uh, and I you know they sent me a few um, you know samples of your work you know this is a style and I wasn't even aware that you sort of were um, you know, dedicated commission to do it as such. But I've never really talked to any of my illustrators before, so this is exciting for me too. Usually, it's just this is the cover. Do you like it? And I, I can say stuff like, you know, I'm not. This seems problematic, or this doesn't really represent the book in my. But usually, um, you know, they just ask to be polite. It's not that much you can do in the end. Yeah. Because so that's how it works is the, well, with us anyway, the American publisher reached out to me via my agent and the same will be for your publishers in different countries for different illustrators. Is it quite nerve wracking trusting publishers to choose the right artist for your cover art and not having a hand in the matter? I think I'd find that quite difficult. Uh, to be honest, um, the, uh, in a way, um, I have to say, I, I'm, I'm a bit on the fence when it comes to my German publisher's current artistic choices, because very, the way publisher approaches thing is very much what sells and not so much what looks beautiful, not even what represents the books best. It's like sort of they want to sell it and, you know, if they have to print, I mean, it was, um, I don't have a book here, I have a book here. Anyway, the, um, the um, latest one, of the, they wanted a corgi on it because that tells the German reader, this is set in England, so it gives the, you know, all the English vibes apparently having a corgi there. And, and I was like, there's no corky in the book. <laughs> you really want to, <laughs> there was a centerpiece of the cover. And I actually ended up writing in a little cameo for that corky because I felt like you can't just, you know, sell a book with, you know, dog on top and having no dog whatsoever inside. It felt like a fraud. So, um, yeah, the interest can differ. And, and because the German, I feel like the German approach, which might be very legitimate in terms of sales, you know, because I don't know what, what actually works in terms of sales, but in terms of aesthetics and in terms of how I see my book, 
um, I always struggle with them a bit because I feel like this isn't really me and this isn't really what I what I wrote. Um, and uh, compared to that, the, the 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 American and the English approach is really pleasant surprise. But it's always you always feel um, yeah, um, you, you, it's like sort of having a shop and. Um, you want the shop look nice from the outside because I think, it's, especially in books, it's such an important bit of the whole process. Just you see a book and you find it attractive, and that decides on whether you, you know, take it off a shelf and look at it and open it or not. So, um, for me, it's really important. But then again, what is pleasing to me might not be what actually works. So it's very hard to pass final judgment on that. But anyway, I'm very, I'm very pleased with you how the American one turned out. Oh, good, I'm glad. This is what's so interesting is that, um, I guess, as you were kind of saying earlier, with, with the German cover versus the English cover, learning how the different territories have different audiences of different tastes. And that is, tends to be, that will be reflected in the cover art. So with the UK and Europe, but covers tend to be quite typographic and it would just be sort of the name with illustrated worlds or patterns around it whereas with the US it's fully animated characters full visibility and apparently that's because in the UK young people don't respond to animated characters in quite the same way uh, they feel like they're being condescended to or babied slightly whereas in America people really embrace the fan culture and they really want to know what the characters look like maybe because of Tumblr and fan art is bigger over there it's really interesting but it is interesting yes yeah so my cover has element all different elements from the book yeah the um the, the, the Germans are like the cover doesn't have to show what's in the book at all like so, you know it's, it's not about it's about like a certain feel and a certain association and um, and I felt like, okay, it might not have to show what's in the book, but can't really show what's not in the book. <laughs> That's the question. Yeah. Um, and my very favorite cover is, is a Japanese one because the um, the first book has been translated in quite a lot of languages and one of them was Japanese. And that's a completely different approach. And basically it took all the sheep characters I had and sort of drew them in a Japanese way. So having this sort of the, 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 the ram is like a samurai sheep. And very, very simple, but at the same time, very iconic. And that's my absolute favorite, completely different approach again. Uh, and it is definitely interesting to see how different uh, publishers in different countries tackle the same theme. Yeah, that must be so nice for you to have all the different country covers sort of lined up to compare. It's so different. I mean, if you look at it, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't dream it that all is the same book. And I think it makes a big difference in terms of, as I said, like, like, a, like a shop front, if you sort of, you know, if you want to, buy a certain thing like and a gloves and, and the shop looks like it's a butcher then you won't go in and you'll never find out they actually got gloves in there so I think it is really important. That's why I don't really understand the saying uh, don't trust a book by its cover because I I totally think you know it's what's inside is obviously the most important but you're not going to pick it up in the first place unless you're drawn to the cover I don't think. Yes. Mm. And I think it, it, for me at least, it needs to be aesthetically pleasing as well. It needs to be beautiful as an object. Yeah, definitely. What's the best piece of advice you remember receiving in relation to writing? <laughs> I suppose it must have been get an agent. <laughs> referring back to the, um, I don't think I received much advice in terms of um, other people telling me how to do stuff. Um, a bit that sort of 
was important to me and something I sort of I had to realize for myself was that it's a craft more than an art because if it's if it's an art or purely an art you feel like you either can do it or not either the muse will kiss you or not and you, you're a bit passive in that way whereas if you feel see it as a craft it's something that can be honed and perfected and if what you first produce doesn't meet the standards it doesn't mean that you're no good at it, it just means that um, you have to work on on yourself and, and on the things you're doing so that craft idea for me was really, really valuable because before that I felt like all well, these authors they're just brilliant people who just write flawless prose on white paper and it's all beautiful and the fact that it can be messy in the process while still be um, worthwhile in the end that was a really big realization for me apart from that uh, Stephen King says kill your darlings and that is probably good advice as well but <laughs> sadly I didn't really see it personally so there you go and looking back, what's the thing that you're most proud of in your work? Mm-hmm. And I think um, doing what I'm doing, I tend to feel a fraud some of the time because basically I just make stuff up. And sometimes it feels a bit like a cheat. You know, you make stuff up and somehow you make a living from it. And it's not really work at all because you're having fun all the time. So you feel a bit, I suppose it's called imposter syndrome. You feel a bit, this isn't, you know, I'm tricking someone here. And and sometimes I, I pull one of my older books out of the, you know, from the shelf and look at it and read a page or two. And because I have more distance then, as of because while you're writing, you never really have a good idea of what you do is how good or how good it is. You just, you know, sort of muddle on and hope for the best. And if I got this distance and read something that I don't really have fresh in my head in when I read it and I feel like this is actually good. This is a proper book. This is not just something I, I muddled together. Um, I suppose that that's, these are good moments. And sometimes you get readers who um, you feel are immersed enough to um, so that the characters have their, um, you know, a life of their own to them and they accept them as a sort of kind of reality. That, that is really touching. I, I once had these readers, again, this is about my first book, The Sheep One, um, people come to come to a book signing and one of them asked me um, because there was a, a sh- pregnant sheep and, and um, the, why she's uh, pregnant. Uh, um, I suppose you don't say pregnant with use, do you? But anyway, um, the question was, is this and that character the father of the baby? And I never even given it a thought, obviously, that sheep is carrying and somebody has to be the father, but that wasn't sort of unfolded in the book and I didn't really worry about it. But the question told me that the person, you know, took took this world as real, real enough to wonder, you know, who of the other sheep was uh, had sired the, the... And this is one of these moments you feel like you sort of cross the line slightly between made-up stuff and some level of reality. And, yeah, that's... Um, I suppose these are my favourite bits when that happens. That's such a lovely moment. And you've been writing the sequel to The Sunset Hall, as you mentioned earlier, that's coming out soon? Or no, or you're currently writing? Well, it'll be three altogether. So the first one's um, coming out end of August in the States and end of September, um, let's see, you know, Sunset um, yeah, years of Agnes Sharp, and there's a second one which already finished, and it has come out in Germany. I think it'll be called um, Miss Sharp Goes on Holiday, something like that. But we had a better title than that. 
And how did you find the process of revisiting those characters? And can we have any clues of what to expect next? Uh, well, um, in a way, um, it's easy to revisit characters because you already start with a cast that you know a lot about. And if you like your cast and you, if you feel like it's interesting enough what they do and you're interested in them and they're further, it's sort of quite easy to you know, take up where you, where you left them. So that, that is a fun bit. And you can also sort of explore bits that you feel like you neglected. Of. Obviously, what you really show is a very, very small um, part of their lives and, and of their you know, um, personalities. So you can always sort of look forward to showing different bits and different angles. Um, at the same time, obviously, you can't reinvent the wheel. So you're stuck in a certain scenario and you have to like a scenario to really carry on with it um but i really i really like the, the you know the 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 old people of sunset hall a lot so it was easy to just sort of take them to other places and see what happens so the next one which is agnes sharp of and a trip of a lifetime that's the title um yeah so that will come out in somewhere next year in the states i don't know about the uk but probably similar as expect um and yeah this is basically um having the same old folks only um they will be um holidaying um not on a cruise ship because that was <laughs> the research was scuppered but um they'd be in a sort of remote um luxury hotel cornish coast and um have um yeah have the adventures and murders there it's a bit of a more of a you know classic um locked space um they'd be, they'd, they'd be cut off and they will be dealing with a murderer there would be the odd casualty obviously there'll be you know them struggling with hotel life and there will be a new animal um which is snake uh, because hetty is hetty is uh, hibernating so um, because it's in the winter months so hetty is nowhere to be seen sadly but we'll have a snake to you know have fun with well looking forward to reading and frustrating um so we'll just end with some quick five questions if that's okay with you okay first thing you do when you wake up open one eye then the other find out what the time is and usually go down and feed the dog yeah last thing you do before you go to sleep um if i'm honest i'd probably look at my phone <laughs> and finally why is living a creative life important to you as like again i don't even think of it as a creative life but i think it's freedom in the end it's just doing things that are important to you and also just um making something sort of contributing to the world in a way just not yeah but i suppose you can do it in different ways so again it's it's just something that works for me and yeah it's i suppose in the end it's, it's about it being satisfying it feels right in its sort of um, own way it's not about you know being for something or being useful it's just the process is valuable in itself to me If you want to find out more about Leonie's work, you can find her on Instagram at underscore Leonie Swan and you can find me at Georgie Stewart Illustration. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to share it with a friend or anyone who might find it interesting. Thank you for listening to Creative Rituals.